This is Lisa. And I'm Jacqueline. This is Alt House Radio, a podcast about housing justice, alternative forms of housing, and models of collective ownership. We're not professional podcasters or professional journalists. We're architecture students. As we continue to learn about the histories of housing politics and ongoing activism on Alt House Radio, we're bringing you along for the journey. To kick off the series this week, we're learning about the other CLTs, not cross-laminated timber, but community land trusts. Take it away, Jack. Earlier this summer, amidst Black Lives Matter protests and COVID-19 quarantines across the country and the globe, a homeless encampment on the Benjamin Franklin Parkway in Philadelphia entered a contentious standoff with the city. What do we want? Housing! When do we want it? Now! If we can't get it, at the heart of the standoff are two organizations with similar names, so I'll try not to confuse you. So the first is the Philadelphia Housing Authority, which is often referred to as PHA. It's a public agency that provides affordable housing to low-income residents. Their annual budget of around $400 million primarily comes from the federal government and has enabled them to become the biggest landlord in Pennsylvania. The second organization in opposition to PHA is a coalition called Philadelphia Housing Action that was formed between three organizations, Black and Brown Worker Cooperative, Workers Revolutionary Collective, and Occupy PHA. Philadelphia Housing Action basically argues that the housing authority isn't doing enough. There are many facets to the argument, but one of the main points in this case is the fact that PHA owns hundreds of vacant properties, most of which are eventually auctioned to developers and turned into market rate units. In the eyes of the activists, in short, the housing authority's priorities are in the wrong place. The families that need housing should get these empty units. PHA has a list of families seeking affordable housing that currently has over 40,000 families and hasn't accepted new applicants since 2013. Society already knows the system that's put in place to keep us from having things. We know the system is designed to keep us down. We know the system is designed to not really help Black women. Occupy PHA, one of the organizations in the Philadelphia Housing Action Coalition, has been taking action into their own hands. Here's Jennifer Benich, a lead organizer of Occupy PHA, and Natasha, a Philly resident. Our housing authority here in Philadelphia owns a lot of vacant, viable homes that they just leave as blight in the neighborhood and don't house people in. So during the pandemic, um, we've been supporting families into making these vacant homes that are meant to house families anyway into their homes. Okay, my name is Natasha. Um, I live in a five-bedroom, three-story house in North Philadelphia. Um, me being able to be here has taken a, a, a huge weight off of myself and my children's shoulders. I always thought about it because I feel like there's so many empty houses just sitting there. Like, they're rotting. They're just sitting there empty. The structure of it is good. It's like you got all these families that's that needs housing in their own city, not to be sent eight hours away to try to get housing somewhere in another county or state, you know. 
By mid-October, after threats of police action and a mix of support and discrimination from nearby residents, Occupy PHA reached an agreement with city officials. The PHA is to transfer 50 properties, including the 15 already occupied by Occupy PHA, to the encampment residents through their establishment of a community land trust. In addition, the Housing Authority announced a pilot program called Working for Home Repair Training Program with the Building and Construction Trades Council to renovate homes that will be added to the new CLT's properties, creating housing and employment for those experiencing homelessness. When we came here, the house was a mess. Like we all came together as a family. We, we worked to get the paint and stuff and we basically made it look like a home. And there's still like some work that has to be done, but I think more so we just all just appreciate and have a shelter. We haven't heard much since the news broke about the agreement. We're trying to get in touch with local organizers to talk about any progress that has been made. Until then, what are CLTs? And why are they more capable than the local government at creating permanently affordable housing? CLTs are essentially a real estate innovation through which land can be obtained and owned by a community. I'll leave it to Bob Swan to elaborate. The basic idea behind the land trust is to return to the community the value which is created by the community. Land appreciates in value not because of, generally not because of what individuals do for the land. They might improve it some, surely. You know, they may uh, improve the soil, uh, they may uh, add buildings and so on, and those are definite improvements. But the land itself, the basic land, appreciates in value, not because of what they do, but because the community itself becomes a valuable place to live because of other people that are there. So the, the land trust idea is to return to the community the value which is created by the community. Buildings on that land can be sold or leased to individuals or developed for other community-driven purposes. In its most common form, a land trust is argued to make homeownership more affordable by separating the cost of the building from the cost of the land. In future episodes, we'll unpack this premise. Is homeownership more affordable in a CLT? Who has access to this option? In what ways are CLTs reliant on the systems they seek to undermine? This week, though, we dive into the history of land trusts, uncovering an evolution that is inextricable from social justice and from civil rights movements. The first community land trust in the United States, called New Communities, Inc., was founded in Albany, Georgia in 1970. Its development began in the early 1960s in the midst of the civil rights movement in Georgia. Up against the staunch resistance of an all-white city council and a segregationist governor, the Albany movement demanded complete desegregation of their community. The movement learned from civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. and began organizing nonviolent marches, protests, and sit-ins, and even invited King and Ralph Abernathy to join their demonstrations. In fact, two of King's relatives, Slater King, a local real estate broker, and C.B. King, 
one of only three African-American lawyers in the state of Georgia at the time, played important roles both in the Albany movement and the development of the first CLT. Part of the goal of the protests was to incite hostile responses from the police that would be highly publicized in contrast to their nonviolence. Here is Barbara McCaskill, a professor at the University of Georgia. What they didn't expect was a police force that had studied their tactics, that had studied the writings of Dr. King, that had studied the writings of Mohandas Gandhi. Led by police officer Lori Pritchett, the police tried to be very dignified and respectful to the activists in front of the cameras so that the confrontations that were filmed and photographed lacked the drama of the confrontations that we see in places like Birmingham and in places like Montgomery. Nevertheless, with King's presence, mass arrests, and jailings of thousands of protesters, they were able to gain broader recognition and visibility to their cause. And then it was C.B. King who represented the Albany movement, negotiating the release of protesters after such arrests. Besides the Kings, the other major leader of the Albany movement was an organizer with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, named Charles Sherrod. Sherrod came to Albany in 1961 to establish a local voter registration campaign. He worked to recruit the young people of Albany and the surrounding rural communities to the cause. We were building a better life for our people. We were always doing voter registration and that we were always doing direct action. But Sherrod soon realized the unrelenting opposition they were faced with. They thought that if they filled the jails, the authorities would have to pay attention. But the authorities just started sending folks to jails in neighboring counties. They thought if they could register to vote, they would be able to make a change. But soon learned that people were being evicted from their homes and fired from jobs as a consequence of speaking out, or even simply registering to vote. I was canvassing on the plantation. I knocked on the door of a man and his wife. They promised me they'd come to the mass meeting. They come to the church with their five children. They told me that they had been kicked off the plantation, had nowhere to go for the night. Sherrod and the other leaders of the Albany movement knew they had to do something. How could they expect to build momentum under such precarious conditions? Late Representative John Lewis and Shirley Sherrod reflect on these challenges in a documentary called The Ark of Justice. There were many African-Americans who were sharecroppers and tenant farmers in Georgia in Alabama, in Mississippi, in Tennessee. And when they attempted to register to vote, they were forced off of the land. They were living on plantation, living on some other person's land. There was this growing feeling on the part of so many individuals and leaders within the movement that if you had your own piece of land, 
you could do things. You wouldn't be dependent on others. You can help people fight for their rights, but when they don't have a base, when they don't have something that they own and they get kicked off the property, that's a really, really, really tough position. This brings us to a chance meeting between Slater King, who you'll remember was a real estate broker and relative of Martin Luther King Jr., and a new character in the story, Robert or Bob Swan. A trained carpenter from Ohio, Bob Swan's involvement in land reform begins in a prison in Ashland, Kentucky, where he and a group of conscientious objectors were being held during World War II. While in prison, Swan and a number of other inmates began studying economics based on the principles of Mahatma Gandhi. Swan arranged for a course to be taught in the prison by Arthur Morgan, an author and academic whose work was about the need to refocus attention on small local communities. Upon his release from prison, Swan's skill in house building and interest in economic reform led him to a remarkable series of jobs all across the country. After working a few years for Arthur Morgan in Ohio, Swan went to Michigan and worked with Frank Lloyd Wright to build Usonian houses in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Wright was a follower of Henry George, a philosopher that critiqued capitalism's reliance on land ownership and speculation. With the Usonian project, he worked on developing materials and techniques that would enable houses to be built with less skilled labor. After this stint working with FLW, Swan became involved in the construction of a racially integrated housing development in Philadelphia in a cooperative called Bryn Gwelid that was initiated by Ralph Borsodi. In 1962, Swan came to the South and ended up in Albany to help rebuild firebombed black churches with CNVA, a nonviolence action organization. In this way, he was lending his construction skills to aid in mending some of the damage done to these communities. Here, Slater King and Bob Swan's unlikely friendship was formed. At this point, with all his experience, Swan was an advocate for a vision of a community land trust that confronted some of the problems he had seen in other models. There were three fundamental principles, cooperatively owned land, private leasing of homesteads, and open membership for the community, membership that isn't limited to those leasing a homestead. Over the next few years, Swan and Bordosi organized a conference around developing a model for cooperatively owned land in rural developments in the United States. At the conference, they won the attention of Faye Bennett, Executive Secretary of the National Sharecroppers Fund, or NSF, and secured funding to organize a trip to Israel to research the agricultural communities developed on land leased by the National Jewish Fund. In 1968, Bob Swan, Slater King, Faye Bennett, Charles Sherrod, and four others made the journey. And now, advertisements that nobody requested or asked for. Whatsoever. How many 20th century architects can you name off the top of your head? Oh, they're all men? 
Yikes. There are so many women architects from all over the world who remain uncredited for their amazing design contributions, and many who are barely mentioned in a book, let alone have their own dedicated monograph. The Princeton Women in Design and Architecture Annual Conference hopes to change this by focusing on a new woman architect each year and producing incredible documentation in the form of a publication. This year, their focus is Sri Lankan architect Manette Da Silva, who was the country's first modern architect and the first Asian woman to become an associate of the Royal Institute of British Architects. We are so excited to learn more about her from international historians and scholars and hear from artists, curators, and practitioners at the conference. So save the date for March 4th and 5th. I know I will. Pigeon 28 is out now. As always, the latest edition of the School of Architecture's pocket-sized student publication includes an eclectic compilation of contemporary thought in architecture and its related disciplines from Princeton and beyond. Pick up a copy at the SOA building or order one online at pigeon.press. That's P-I-D-G-I-N dot press. Submissions for future issues are always open. Send inquiries to contact at pigeon.press. Solidarity, not charity. Princeton Mutual Aid is a grassroots organization that started up in March at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, when structural inequalities became ever more apparent as members of our community became cut off from their normal routines. Community members lost access to basic needs like rent, groceries, money for utilities, medicine, bikes, clothing, shoes, and laptops for remote learning. PMA members connect the community with their needs. What powers these actions is our shared conviction that our well-being is interconnected and interdependent, that none of us can be truly free or safe or well until we all are. PMA needs our support. They spend about $2,000 per week just on groceries and need to replenish that weekly, plus lots of other things like cash asks that arise. You can visit PMA's website at princetonmutualaid.com to see how you might want to participate or their Instagram at Princeton Mutual Aid to see direct cash asks. When they returned, work on founding New Communities, Inc. got underway. The group drew upon Swan's knowledge of land and housing models, Slater King's real estate expertise, C.B. King's legal consultation, and Sherrod's community organizing to set their course. Here's Bob Swan. Slater had been well recognized as one of the strong leaders in the civil rights movement, but he was also a businessman. He was also a, uh, he was actually in in real estate. That was his, his business. So he was in a position to know about land and where land could be uh, found and so on. And shortly after we began this uh, process, he was able to locate uh, tract of land, 5,000-acre former plantation, not far from Albany, that uh, could become and did become eventually the, the first community land trust in the United States. It was a, an expensive piece of land. It was uh, over a million dollars to buy the land, 5,000 acres, a lot of land, and uh, it was a, well, it was a uh, cliffhanger at the very end because we, the last 50,000 that we needed to make it possible didn't come in until two minutes after the deadline 
after the deadline, not before, but after the deadline. The process was full of opposition and setbacks. A month after fundraising began, Slater King was killed in a car accident, leaving Charles Sherrod and his wife Shirley in major leadership roles. Slater King and I were very close. Losing him was like losing the brother. So devastating to what we were trying to do, which meant that Sherrod had to step up even more if we were going to hold on to this. New Communities, Inc. pressed on in the face of tragedy and purchased over 5,000 acres of land near Leesburg, Georgia, as planned in early 1970, the largest tract of land owned by African Americans in the United States at the time. I think Black people even if they were not involved, felt proud that, that we could actually get our hands on that much land. You know, land meant power. You know, land established you as somebody. We received a planning grant of nearly $100,000 from the Office of Economic Opportunity so we've gone from fighting for our rights to now having rights and trying to do something with it. To start, new communities occupied the existing buildings on the land, but with the awarded grant, they soon began planning expansion with a series of charrettes led by experts. The future residents decided on the kind of educational, health, industrial, housing, recreational, and agricultural systems they would have. A list of over 500 families signed up to lease the new homes once they were constructed. While they were able to raise a large amount of the money necessary to purchase the land found by Slater, they still had to borrow over a million dollars. Over the next 15 years, profits from farming went toward paying off this debt. All the while, they faced discrimination at every turn, from locals vandalizing their property to the highly racialized lending practices of the Farmers Home Administration. After their initial planning phase, the federal funds that had been promised by the Office of Economic Opportunity were blocked by Georgia's segregationist governor, Lester Maddox. With so many obstacles, their plans to develop residential communities on the land were completely stunted, but for a while at least, they successfully developed their farm, raising livestock and growing everything from greens to grapes. However, by the time multiple seasons of drought hit the area, Without the ability to secure a loan, they were forced to sell a quarter of the land and eventually lost the rest to foreclosure in 1985. New Communities, Inc. was not alone in this loss of land. In 1910, black farmers owned 15 million acres of farmland. By 1982, they owned only 3 million acres, an 80% decline. Recognizing this devastating trend, black farmers across the South and across the country organized and filed a federal lawsuit. In 1977, Timothy Pigford and 400 other African-American farmers sued Dan Glickman, the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, alleging racial discrimination in lending by the USDA Farmers Home Administration. The case was won in their favor two years later, and New Communities, Inc., with the help of attorney Rose Sanders, filed their own claim against Georgia's FHA. In 2009, after the decade-long class action lawsuit claim against the U.S. Department of Agriculture, years of being dismissed by the USDA, New Communities, Inc. was awarded a settlement of $12 million. We didn't hear anything else on our case 
until July, the night of July 8, 2009. That's when our lawyer called our house. I answered the phone. She said, Shirley, have you heard? I said, no. She said, we won. She's all excited. You know, it's 10 years now, you know. So I said, really? She said, you want to guess how much? I said, well, Rose is at least a million dollars. And she said, Shirley is 12. So it was just so unbelievable. Just a few weeks later, Shirley Sherrod was appointed to be the state director for rural development in Georgia, the first black person in that position. With the proceeds from the lawsuit, new communities purchased Cypress Pond, an antebellum plantation once owned by the largest slaveholder in Georgia, reviving their original mission. Someone suggested that we should look at Cypress Pond Plantation. So one Sunday morning, we came out here. We went in that, that big antebellum home, and I just had a problem with antebellum. Why would we want an antebellum home, a plantation. That place was once owned by the largest slave owner and the wealthiest man in Georgia. Then I started looking at this and saying, this is where we were supposed to be. What a statement to our people that this could go from, from a slave owner to descendants of slaves. Okay, so we have two very different stories, but actually with a lot in common. In both cases, when the government failed to protect the most basic rights of citizens, people found ways to take matters into their own hands and take control of the situation. With New Communities Inc., there was a direct confrontation with blatantly racist systems. Without land, black farmers had no stable footing on which to fight for their rights. How could they stand their ground without ground to call their own? It was really impactful to hear Charles Sherrod talk about his experience with voter registration in Georgia. How many people were evicted from their homes and from their land just for trying to exercise their right to vote? And the way systemic racism developed, laws and tactics of suppression just became more coded and covert. So with voting, for example, there were poll taxes, literacy tests, and it hasn't ended. Just think about all the accusations that mail-in ballots are fraud or the attempts to discount millions of votes. I mean, the denial of property rights has been used for centuries to marginalize poor people, people of color, and women. Voting rights in the U.S. were originally only extended to white men over 21 who owned land. Right. And so many of these tactics for maintaining power and control still revolve around land and housing. Philadelphia gives such a clear example. 
People see their neighborhoods being intentionally blighted, houses left vacant, and then eventually flipped for huge profits by developers. And it makes sense that COVID made these housing disparities all the more evident. Philly wasn't alone. The pandemic spurred a similar movement in LA when last March, a group of unhoused and housing insecure families began to reclaim vacant homes in El Sereno. They reached a temporary agreement with the local housing authority, but their ultimate goal is to establish a land trust and gain community control of the homes. With both new communities and Philadelphia Housing Action, people stepped up, people who have been completely cast off by the system, and reclaimed their basic needs together. Neither could have succeeded without the collaboration of such diverse groups of people. I think with new communities, it's interesting to see how by acting as a collective, they were able to draw on so many different forms of expertise. There were Slater King's real estate knowledge and the Sherrods who were really involved in the civil rights battles and all the local farmers with their intimate knowledge of the land. Plus Bob Swan, who brought all his past experience with community development as a model that focuses on community control, stability and affordability. The land trust idea makes total sense in that context. Contrary to the typical narrative around CLTs, I think what's important in the end isn't homeownership per se, it's simply housing, it's shelter, and it's putting control of housing into the hands of the people through direct action. The basic necessity of a place to live is foundational to so many other inequalities. It's tied to health and mental health, to the ability to work and provide for yourself and your family, to being able to participate in public life. But I think there's still a lot to unpack about the homeownership narrative and the overall economic implications of the CLT model. With or without a land trust, owning a home is out of reach to a large percentage of people. If the underlying values of CLTs don't rely on homeownership, what changes about the CLT model? Is it more or less economically feasible, more or less tied to the government? We saw one of the major obstacles for new communities was the debt they incurred from the initial land purchase. Nowadays, we have seen many CLTs acquire land by purchasing it from a municipality for a nominal dollar, and that initial acquisition is just one piece of the puzzle. It seems that no matter how the land is acquired, there are systems that keep CLTs tied to the market and the government. What do we make of this relationship? Are CLTs destined to be reliant on these systems? There's definitely still a lot to cover. I smell a sequel? Yeah, this story definitely isn't over. Next time on Alt House Radio. Susan Witt, Bob Swan, there's even more. More! The song you heard throughout this episode is Dorothy Ashby's Come Live With Me from the album Afro Harping. The audio snippets you heard come from a variety of podcasts, documentaries, and videos. For a full list of citations and more information about our podcast, visit psoaradio.wixsite.com slash althouse.